Proverbs 9:10 podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 9:10 Ministries, Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. We're continuing our series in Women in Scripture. In the last episode, we finished up the book of Esther. Today, we're going to start looking at the only other book in the Bible named after a woman, and that's the book of Ruth. Chris, I think before we actually get into the book of Ruth, it would be helpful for our listeners if we set the stage for them by giving a little bit of Israel's history up to the time of the book of Ruth. I agree, Rose. So let's go back in history. Before the time and the events in the book of Ruth take place, God had delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt led by Moses. This is the time that most people, even if they don't know much about anything in the Bible, might be familiar with because it's when God parted the waters of the Red Sea and Moses led the Israelites through the water on dry land. And when they had all made it across, God closed the walls of water over the Egyptian army that was following them trying to get their slaves and their wealth back. Have you ever seen the Ten Commandments with Charles and Heston? It does a great job depicting this scene. You realize how old that movie is, right? Is it like the 50s or 60s? Uh, yeah. But you're right. A lot of people probably do know something about Moses and what he did from that Ten Commandments movie. But getting back to the Israelites after they crossed the Red Sea. After that, God led the Israelites, his chosen people, through the desert, and he fulfilled all their needs. But that doesn't stop them from grumbling and complaining against God. They were so ungrateful. Kind of like we are. A lot. Yeah. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah, that is true. When they make it to the edge of the promised land, the land that God promised to give them, they sent spies in the land to check it out. Those spies brought back word that the land was really good, but it was strongly held. Ten of the twelve spies said that there was no way they could conquer the land. Only two of the spies had confidence that God would fulfill his promise and give them success and give them the land. Only those two had faith that God would do what he said, despite that the odds looked humanly impossible. You know, Rose, when I read that, I always tend to think that those Israelites were ridiculous to not trust God, who had just brought them through the Red Sea on dry land. But the truth of the matter is, without God intervening in our lives and causing us to have faith in him, we'd be like the other ten, not the two. We would. And because of their unbelief, God caused all the Israelites to wander in the desert 40 years before bringing them into the Promised Land, under the leadership of Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who did have faith. What God was essentially doing was sending everyone over the age of 20 out in the wilderness to die as punishment for not believing in the promise God had made them. The Israelites had been warned that they would have blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. But eventually, under Joshua's leadership, the rest of the Israelites entered the land God promised them, And God commands them to totally expel some people groups and totally destroy others whose land they're taking possession of. Right. And this all happens in the book of Joshua. And this can be really hard to read and think about. But we have to remember that God is perfectly holy and perfectly just. God had allotted this territory to be conquered so his people could take possession of it. But we can't take this to mean that this is something we could ever do as a human being on our own. As we said, God himself, the almighty creator, was doing all the real fighting. Besides getting the land for his people, he was killing and driving out the pagans who occupied the land because it was his divine judgment on them. That's a good point to make. The Israelites were not taking this land for any reason. They weren't doing it on the basis of race, 
for instance, we know that Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute, but she trusted in the Lord and became part of the Israelite people. And the conquest was not for the purpose of gaining wealth or power, and the wars for the land were carried out as God's judgment for his purposes. Right. And we know that when Jesus comes back, the world will be judged. A lot of people see this first judgment in the promised land as an early judgment on unbelieving people. Yeah, and it's important to note that the Israelites couldn't have won these wars for the land if God hadn't supernaturally done the fighting for them. They were basically, as one of our professors, Dr. Stewart, used to say, his mop-up crew. <laughs> I love Dr. Stewart. I do too. And that's a great point. The first, and maybe one of the best examples, is the Battle of Jericho. I mean, walking around a walled city and blowing trumpets doesn't exactly get the job done in war, unless hmm. it's God doing the actual fighting. No, it doesn't. So the Israelites go in and they take the land. Israel goes into the land and they progress, but they disobey God and they don't fully conquer all of the pagan people in the ways that God instructed them to. And the pagan people became a snare and a problem for them. Just like God said they would. Yep. And God's people soon began to practice idolatry, or at the very least, they practiced syncretism, which is a mixing of pagan worship practices and worshiping the one true God. And after their godly leader, Joshua, dies, the Israelites really go downhill. Something you read about in the book of Judges, which chronicles the cycle of God's people rebelling, God getting angry, God giving his people into the hands to be oppressed by their enemies, the people crying out to God in repentance, the people getting relief from their enemies through a God-appointed judge, and then peace in the land until that judge dies, and then the whole cycle starts over again. If you're listening and wondering when we're going to get to the book of Ruth, that time is now. The events in the book of Ruth take place during the time of the judges. This is the horrible time of sin and rebellion against God's law when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Ruth is a picture of faithfulness and fidelity in contrast to all the other crap that's going on during the time of Judges. And the year for this is sometime between 1375 B.C. and 1118 B.C., and likely towards the beginning of that time. But before we're introduced to Ruth in the book named after her, we're told about an Israelite named Elimelech, whose name means my God a king, and his wife Naomi. They have two sons, Malon and Chilion, whose name means sickness and consumption. Yeah, often biblical scribes didn't use the actual names, but they named them after their character traits. It's possible that Naomi's boys were sickly and died from sickness and consumption, and that's why the scribes named them those names. Just an interesting note. Yeah, because it would be kind of weird to name your kids that. Yeah, it kind of would. <laughs> Who knows? But anyway, there was a famine in the land of Israel. Instead of toughing out the famine like the rest of his countrymen, Elimelech takes his family out of the promised land and into the land of Moab. The Bible says they went to live for a while. You know, Chris, I find it interesting. This is during the time of Judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Elimelech here is doing what is right in his own eyes. Absolutely. He's no different than most of the rest of them. Nope. But he takes his family to Moab. Elimelech taking his family to Moab is pretty much viewed as something that's unjustified despite the famine. And for good reasons. The Moabites weren't always on friendly terms with the Israelites. When the Israelites were in the desert wandering, the king of Moab tried to have a curse placed upon him. In addition to that, the people of Moab worshipped the pagan gods of Baal Peor and Chemosh. This is worship that included orgies and human sacrifice. 
even sacrifice of children. Yeah, it's definitely not a godly environment in any way. But Elimelech still leads his family into Moab. God had brought the famine on as a means of punishment to the Israelites. He wanted them to turn to him in repentance, not run away to try to find an alternate solution to their problems. We don't know how old Malon and Chilion were when they left the promised land for Moab, but we do know they weren't married yet. We do. Sometime after they settled in Moab, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi alone with her two sons in the foreign country. We're not told much about their life, except that at some point, Malon and Chilion get married to Moabite women. One is named Orpah and one is named Ruth. They live there for about 10 years and then both sons die without having any children. Some commentators say that the death of the sons was for marrying Moabite women, something forbidden in Mosaic law. You know, Rose, this first part of the book of Ruth is really Naomi's story. The end of verse 5 says, The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Yeah, I think it really is her story. And now she's a widow in a foreign land with two alien daughters-in-law who are also widowers. But then God gives Naomi a bit of good news that should give her some hope. Somewhere along the line, word came to Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in the promised land and ended the famine. So Naomi decides it's time to return home to the town of Bethlehem, Judah, where her and Elimelech had migrated from more than a decade earlier. All three women start out together. These women love each other. But then Naomi decides it would probably be in the best interest of her two daughter-in-law to stay in the land they'd grown up in so they could return to their childhood homes in hopes that they would get married again. And they're all crying at the thought of parting. And both Ruth and Orpah say they want to stay with their mother-in-law. But Naomi keeps insisting they go back to their childhood home. She knows the women are young enough to get married again and they could have families of their own. Something she tells them won't be possible if they follow her to the promised land. She's basically laying out what the cost of following her will be. I like that. And that's a pretty self-sacrificing thing to do. I mean, it doesn't say how far they'd gone before she tried to get him to go back. But no matter what, Naomi would have to travel the rest of the way by herself if they both left her. It really was a selfless act. And it shows how much Naomi loved the two women that she refers to as her daughters. You can see why they loved her. You can. And there are two important things to note in what Naomi says to them. She says that their difficulties are more bitter for her because the Lord's hand had gone out against her. That's in Ruth 1.13. Don't miss that Naomi fully realizes who is in control of all the circumstances. And because her circumstances are pretty dire at the moment, she thinks it's because God is against her. Although she doesn't state any reason for why he would be. Maybe she realizes they should have never left the promised land to begin with. That could be. But the text doesn't give us any reason to believe that she's done anything wrong that is causing the Lord to be against her. And the Lord doesn't always work that way. In fact, think of Job. Exactly. That's right. But that's how a lot of Christians tend to think when they go through hard times. It's easy to think that God's punishing us or at least disciplining us. And he might be disciplining us. But going through hard times doesn't always mean we're being disciplined or punished. In fact, it might actually be a huge blessing. And we're going to see that's the case with Naomi. I'm not saying Naomi never did anything wrong, but God's working something much bigger here. He certainly is. Getting back to the three women, Orpah decides to turn back and Naomi urges Ruth to go back too. In fact, she says Orpah is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. 
This is the first time the Moabite gods are mentioned in regard to this family. Orpah obviously hadn't fully converted to Judaism. The cost of leaving everything she knew was too great for her. Matthew Henry, one of our favorite commentators, equates this to people who show some affection for Jesus, but they love other things more. For anyone who's not truly saved, the cost of following Jesus will always be too high. But Ruth proved that she belonged to Yahweh when she tells Naomi, Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. She even makes an oath before God that she be punished severely if anything but death separates them. So when Naomi sees how determined Ruth is, she stops urging her to go back to Moab. She does, and the two women keep going until they reach Bethlehem. And when they get there, the Bible tells us the whole town was stirred up. You gotta love those small towns. Some of them. (laughs) Some of them. People would have remembered Naomi and her family, but there's been big changes since they've last seen her. She left with three men and came back with one daughter-in-law. No wonder they're stirred up. And when the people call Naomi by name, which means pleasant, right, which means pleasant, Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has bought me home empty again. She's got quite the chip on her shoulder. She sure does. Like we said earlier, Naomi knows that the tragedies that came into her life were not because of chance, and she didn't have a string of bad luck, nor did she lose all three of the men in her life because bad things always happen and come in sets of threes. Do people really believe bad things happen in threes? I don't know how much they believe it, but it's a pretty common saying, so I would say so. You know what's crazy is, in the Bible, the three refers to the Trinity. So why are people saying bad things happen in three? I have no idea. The greatest thing of all happened in three. It is a really common saying, though. But regardless, Naomi knows that God is the one who's completely in control of all of her circumstances. And she says it again to the women of the town. Chapter 1 ends with the words, They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Something that gives us hope as we go into chapter 2 for more of the story of the lives of these women. It's hope that Naomi doesn't seem to have because she considered herself to have come back empty. She doesn't seem to have taken hope yet in the example that's right before her eyes, the one of God providing for the people who had stayed. Chapter 2 starts out telling the reader that Naomi has a wealthy kinsman who's a relative of her late husband. His name is Boaz. But that's all we're told about him for right now. Ruth asks her mother-in-law for permission to go out in hopes of finding a field owned by someone who would let her work in it, gleaning the leftover grain after it was harvested so she could feed them. Naomi wasn't as empty as she said she was. No, not not with a daughter-in-law like that. No, definitely not. I wonder if my daughter-in-law would do that for me. I think she would. She's very sweet. According to Levitical law, one of the ways the Israelites were to provide for the poor was not to completely empty their fields at harvest time. They were to leave some grain along with whatever accidentally dropped so the poor could come and glean for themselves afterward. The poor would come along behind the reapers and pick up grain for themselves. This wasn't easy work. By the time the grain was picked and then beaten to separate the grain from the chaff, it was a sun-up to sundown task. But this is exactly what Ruth asked Naomi if she can go do to provide for them. And Naomi tells her to go ahead and do it. God's providential hand is all over this. The Bible says that Ruth happened to stop at a field owned by Boaz, Naomi's kinsman who was mentioned at the beginning of the chapter. But as we know, nothing happens by chance or luck, and nothing just happens. No, it certainly does not. 
and Boaz shows up at that field that she's working in. He's heard about Ruth, so when he asks his reapers who the new girl in the field is, and he finds out it's her, he's already aware of what she's done for Naomi. Of course, because it's a small town. Absolutely. His reapers give him a good report about her. They tell Boaz how she asked permission to glean in the field and how she came to work early in the morning and has only taken a short break since she's been there. It's obvious that Boaz is impressed with her character, and who wouldn't be? Boaz tells her then to stay in his fields near his other girls who are reaping for him, and he says that he's told his men to keep their hands off of her. He also tells her that if she's thirsty, go and get a drink of water because his men have drawn it. At this, she falls on her face before him, asking why he's taken such good care of her when she's a foreigner. It's pretty obvious she felt somewhat like an outsider from this statement. She probably did. Even Boaz's men refer to her as the Moabitess when they're telling him about it. I'm not saying she got treated badly. The scripture doesn't say anything to lead to that conclusion. But she probably felt like a duck out of water in some ways. And now, Boaz is treating her like one of them. Exactly. He tells her that she's found favor in his eyes because of all that he's heard she's done for Naomi. And he hopes that the Lord will repay her for all she's done since she's come to take refuge under his wing. And in the meantime, Boaz gives her bread and cooked grain and invites her to dip her bread in the oil and vinegar. Ruth eats until she's satisfied and then she saves the rest of the roasted grain to give to Naomi when she gets home. Maybe that's where Olive Garden got the idea. Dipping the bread in the, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like that actually. (laughs) I need some of that right now. Boaz seems like a great guy and he is. When they finish lunch, he tells his workers not only leave what they actually drop, but drop extra for her to pick up. But he tells them, don't say anything to her about it. And when the day's over, Ruth beats out the grain she's harvested and takes what she has along with the lunch leftovers home to Naomi. When Naomi sees how much grain she has, she realizes that whoever owned the fields that Ruth had worked in had taken notice of her. When Ruth says that it's Boaz, Naomi says, may he be blessed by the Lord. And then Naomi says something that's a little ambiguous. It could grammatically mean she's referring to either Boaz or God. She says, he has not forgotten the living or the dead. And when Ruth told her all that Boaz had said to her, Naomi tells her, Boaz is not only one of their kinsmen, he's also one of their redeemers. Naomi's hoping to be protected under a law that God set up a long time ago. We're going to deal with the kinsman redeemer more in the next episode. But in short, it's a relative that's supposed to buy back or redeem a relative who had fallen into hard times and had to sell themselves into slavery. There's also a part of the law where a brother would marry his widowed sister-in-law if she were childless in order to provide offspring to continue his deceased brother's family line. Obviously, Boaz isn't responsible for this because he's not Naomi's son. But he does have a certain amount of familial responsibility. He's not the only one in this position, though as we'll find out later. And it's possible that if he wanted to, Boaz could slip out of this responsibility because he's not the closest relative. Right, and we're going to see in the next episode that the whole idea of the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth ultimately points us to Jesus. What will Boaz do? What will happen to Naomi and Ruth next? Find out in the next episode as we continue on through the book of Ruth. Sounds like a soap opera. It does. We hope you're enjoying our series on women in scripture so far. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple or whatever platform you're listening from. And check out our website, Proverbs910Ministries.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
Have a blessed day.